0: There is no other place in the world that has less enemies to the freedoms that a lot of people here enjoy than the United States. And it's as simple as that.
1: Ed Calderon savors the American experience after spending dangerous years in a feudal war against Mexican cartels. Calderon fled Mexico with his three-year-old daughter, when he had to make a choice between working for a cartel in his police uniform or getting assassinated. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, back with my third and final episode interviewing Ed Calderon. Calderon found refuge in America with help from a Navy SEAL. Today, he works as a security consultant. We go back to a time in his hometown of Tijuana, Mexico, before the cartels turned it into a killing ground. Here's Ed Calderon remembering the long past good old days.
0: It was a pretty sweet place to grow up. Mm -hmm. I grew up with a lot of freedoms. I mean, this is Mexico. People that have gone to Mexico for the weekends uh, or on vacation. And rode around the back of a truck across the city as a kid. Uh, you know, got paid off a few cops after getting caught uh, drinking and driving when I was a teenager. This this is just a wild place. It's freedom, but it, it wasn't dangerous. It wasn't dangerous in that way growing up until it was somewhere in the uh, mid '90s to early 2000s. Uh, whoever owned Tijuana back then was probably the Ariano Felix cartel started to. Weaken in its control. And Sinaloa cartel forces started kind of like creeping into Tijuana and a war broke out, a war that consumed a lot of my friends, a war that touched my family in a lot of ways. Uh, a few of my family members were abducted and uh, ransomed off. Um, so we, you saw this phenomenon that was turning into, it was a great place. You know, I grew up and playing in punk bands and playing in backyards across the, across the city, making a bunch of friends and it was great. And then it wasn't, nobody wanted to go out anymore at night. And it, there was a curfew installed and people were getting murdered and picked up and abducted, and going missing. And Women would go to a party and not come back. I was uh, studying medicine. I was on my second year of that. And the economy went into toilet after 9-11. So I had to look for options. And the option I found was a, a newspaper advert asking for young, unmarried men who were willing to, you know, make the uh, ultimate sacrifice, I guess. Uh, somebody that had didn't have a lot of direction and had nothing to show for as far as, uh, you know, what I've done in my life. I said, let's let's figure this out. I found myself in a paramilitary training camp. <laughs> I thought I was going to de- be doing police work. And I found myself being... Uh, trained by former members of the GAFE, which are SF guys. Some of them actually turned into the Zetas later on. And they were very much training us for urban combat and and warfare in a lot of ways. Later found myself being trained by members of NSW in Coronado uh, for two training cycles and and NCIS people. So... It dawned on me later that uh, I had more in common with these guys coming back from Afghanistan, as far as my experience, than uh, some members of law enforcement that I I would meet uh, in the United States. I was fortunate enough to meet and be under the command of a man called Lieutenant Colonel Lizola, who was a very influential figure in my life. Legend in, in Mexico, uncorruptible dude, multiple assassination attempts on his life. The last one took the use of his legs. He is the real deal. People say and talk and assume things about him. The dude lives in a wheelchair and he has a bunch of uh, issues (laughs) after the war. He basically took uh, control of, but he took that. He took not only Tijuana off the most dangerous city list on the planet, but he also took the city of Juarez off it uh, for a while. Fascinating man, very, very smart, very much treated this whole thing like a war. He left, and along with him leaving, A bunch of politics got involved in some of the work we did. And since we did that work during the time of a conservative presidency, the incoming presidencies were not of that uh, political opinion or inclination. So everything we did was turned into wrong things. You guys were wrong for doing that. And everything got got, uh, shit canned, if you can say that. But a lot of the people that were fired or let go during my time there, because we were put through FBI background checks, polygraph tests, and our financials were looked at with a magnifying glass. A lot of those people that were fired under those grounds were hired back because all of them won this lawsuit where they saw it as unconstitutional that they were fired for not passing a polygraph or for not showing up for a test. Now you had all these cartel guys basically being back at the office. Their pay, back pay in their pockets, showing up with fancy cars. I owned a single car throughout my career, and I've always made it a, a, a like legit, trying to keep myself on the straight and narrow, and risk my life doing so. And all, and I saw the rewards of not doing that in the people that were being let back in. I was put into an office with somebody that was in command at that time, and asked straight up if I wanted to work aside or not. And I said, let me think about it, went outside, handed in my resignation and left that next day. And I, I, I never looked back.
1: And so basically the, the police force that you were a member of it was just, an, a, what, an instrument, a tool of the cartels?
0: It turned into that. It wasn't for a while. It was a legit effort being made by people with money who got politicized. And had candidates win elections to try and put this stuff in control. And their best answer was to militarize the drug war with a lot of issues with that. And a lot of mistakes have been made. And I think it wasn't the best call at the time as, as far as how it was done. But it was a clean force for a while while I was there. There was some people would get corrupted along the way or some things would be an issue. But there was, we were, we were feared. There was, if these guys come, what are we going to do? There was some of that specifically when Lisa Ola was with us, but that ended. And when the cat's away, you know, the, the mice will play. And I think all of that started seeping back in. Police organizations change name, every incoming governor, president, because they want to get rid of the sins of the past. But by doing so, they also get rid of a lot of the talent and a lot of the people there that actually did a good job. And uh, there's no continuation of, of knowledge, of experience in any of these police forces. The guys that do a good job, and I know some of them that worked with me, most of my friends that were there with me working there are now either in the private sector, be earning way more, or some of them are somewhere else doing God knows what with their skill sets. What I see is an effort being done to basically corrode the institutions that did a lot of good for the country of Mexico in the time that I was there, just because they're attached to a certain political party. I've always said this, that Mexico has a problem with amnesia. Every five years or six years, which is the presidential term, we forget about all the good and all the bad, and we start over again. That's why every 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 new president comes into Mexico, there's a new federal police. There's a new uniform that they wear. There's a new name that they they have. You know, I went through, in my career, I went through seeing them in the back of my truck dressed in gray uniform with with their giant G3 rifles, uh, who were all members of the army, who were just dressed differently, to seeing AFI, which is like the Mexican FBI, very corrupt institution, to seeing the Policía Federal, who did some powerful work and did some great work but also there was some issues and some corruption there. And now you're seeing this National Guard unit that was started by the current president who said he didn't want to make the mistakes of the past speaking directly about Calderon who militarized the drug war. He said I'm not going to have the military on the streets. We're not going to have a military commander of anything. It's all going to be civilian and we have a militarized federal police force. <laughs> yeah. It's basically doing the same thing, just different uniforms, different names. And mind you, when I got out, the solution for the government was to put a bunch of us in a truck to patrol problem areas. What do you think they're doing now? Exactly the same thing. So it's been decades and we're still at the same trying to trying to kill the same snake with the same hammer and it's not working As far as what the U.S. should be or Americans listening to this, like, what does that have to do with me? Well, you pay for it. The United States pays for the drug war. Uh, It pays for uniforms training. Uh, It pays for a lot of the stuff happening in Mexico when it comes to law enforcement through a thing called Plan Merida. It's a bilateral agreement between Mexico and the United States as far as some of these issues. It's money. So your tax uh, paying dollars paid for the handcuffs that I carried in Mexico. They paid for some of the uniforms uh, with some American companies behind them. The, the trucks we were we were driving were all Americans, uh, American trucks, because there was an agreement, a bilateral agreement, to just use those types of trucks. Which, in my mind, don't make no don't make any sense uh, for the work they're doing. But since it's an issue related to an international agreement, that's that's what they have to buy and that's how they have to use.
1: And is most of that money getting siphoned off as it comes down? From the U.S.,
0: from my experience in seeing the process, like when I was active, I saw that money and that training. I did see it. I was well equipped. We were one of the best paid police organizations in Mexico at the time, if not the best one. We were certified by an American certific- police certification organization called Calia. I mean, there was efforts being made to like legit make things better, and. That money now is, I don't see that money. If it is still being sent down, which I think it is, I don't see where it's being put. So it's it's in somebody's pocket, probably.
1: You did this for what, 12 years? And why? Did, what drove you out? I don't know how you went to work every day. You must have gone to work wondering, who can I trust? Who's got my back? And what's going to happen to my family?
0: Number one, I didn't have a family when I started. So it was just me. When I say I didn't have a family, it was... I've been on my own since I was about 13, some mm-hmm. family issues. So I was, I was feral and running around. So that wasn't an issue for me. So it made me a perfect candidate for this program that they had. Later on though, like I started to want that for myself, but realistically, there's a quote I heard in in a, in a an American show, True Detective, I think is a show, great show by the way. Be careful of what you get good at is what they say as a quote in that show. And I realized that I was, I professionalized myself in a job that only mattered or worked if I stayed in the job that I was currently in. Mexican policy is this if you get fired or if you quit a law enforcement agency job, you are unhireable for another law enforcement agency job. At least that was the case when I was active. Unless I was commissioned to a federal agency, unless I was commissioned to another agency, if I wanted to quit my law enforcement job and find another law enforcement job somewhere else, while they were doing my verification, it would come up that I had already belonged to a police institution and that would immediately disqualify me from a job. So in essence, I had no options, no options at all. What kept me there was need. I eventually got to a place where I had a kid and that changed everything. You know, the invulnerability aspect of it that we feel when we're young, like uh, I, I had this whole concept that this Jesus concept is, we to I'm 30, 33, you know, I'm going to get 33 and, and I'm out probably in this job. Like I was expecting a bullet any day and it just never got to me. And I, then I had my heart ripped out of my chest and I had this girl, this kid with me. And that just changed everything. I, I really started thinking about more about longevity and staying that specific thing, staying
1: alive. Did you get direct threats or did, was it just clear that you can't do the right thing? I, you're seeing what happens yeah. to other people around you yeah. if they do do the yeah. right thing?
0: I I basically kept myself attached to command structures that I knew weren't on the take. So I went from person to person as recommended because we were all part of a small group, internal group that we did the work and were there for the right reasons. But eventually, they ran out. Basically, there was nobody left to basically work with who I knew was on the up and up. There was uh, phone calls to secure phones that were supposedly secure. Threats. Things left in houses Not, that never happened to me, but a, a few of my friends had uh, funerary crowns, flower crowns left at their houses direct threats from members within the institution you're in, where they will approach you and say, hey, so-and-so says to be careful, and we're going to get you if you don't do this. You know, that type of thing happened regularly. Or you go into a place and the federal police shows up, and they're like, we can take it from here. Why? Because we can. And you can't ask questions. I mean, you're in the, you're in the site, basically. Mm-hmm. It wasn't easy. I think the best thing that could happen to me was to have people like Lieutenant Colonel Lezaola and a few other people in command that were Lezaola basically created the organization that I was in from the start, from the program to the training to the certification to us being on the street. So he actually hand selected a lot of us and constantly was putting people out. But again, he left. he he taught me how to work and people that he brought with him taught me how to work and i that's i'm a product of them and their work and their attempt at saving things uh, which i think worked for a while i think they kept the uh tide away for a bit but we don't have enough like they, they all left and i found myself in a room with people that i didn't want to work with anymore so i had to leave
1: after this message When we come back, I will talk to Ed about how he is teaching lessons learned in Mexico's violent atmosphere to American law enforcement and to civilians for self protection.
0: I started putting a lot of the things that I learned from not only experiencing them myself, but also talking to some of the people that these people could be predated from, debriefing uh, heads of abduction organizations and human trafficking organizations in Mexico, listening to how they did their thing, uh, how they would groom people, how they would utilize others to, to recruit, to interact, how they use young women to basically be the uh, the hand that grabs some of these women off the streets. I mean, get in a car with a bunch of dudes or getting in a car with two women, What's easiest, you know? What what would be more feasible for a lady? I think uh, kind of bringing some of those lessons of social engineering, some of those tradecraft secrets that they use and that we used, um, basically bringing uh, an adversarial mindset to some of the student base that I have in the United States. And I've been basically all over the country uh, training civilians and doctors without borders, people, uh, members of the press that go to dangerous places federal agencies the military you name it the main part of my expertise is basically how to live and work in environments that are not friendly to your presence basically that's kind of the the gist of it and that's that's what I do that that's led me to like uh write for magazines uh and and be a part of even political conversations i've been invited to some senate hearings and i talked about some of the issues in mexico in that way as well so I'm an advocate in a lot of ways of people like myself who have have had to leave environments like that.
1: And your teaching has included the occult practices that the cartels use. Explain to the listeners how they're using these and because it's human sacrifice, cannibalism.
0: Yeah. So there is a lot of static in the world when it comes to some of these issues, as far as the occult element in Mexico. Mexico as a whole is a very spiritual country. It was one of the most Catholic countries for a long time in the world. And along with the spirituality, there's there's an avenue and a doorway for certain dark practices to kind of seep into it, specifically in a place like Mexico where violence and criminality run rampant without checks and balances. The first exposition that most Americans had to some of this was through popular culture and media. Most people's first uh, interaction, visual interaction with the cult of Santa Muerte, for example, the veneration of death that comes out of Mexico, very old. It comes from seeing Breaking Bad and seeing uh, some sicarios basically go to that altar to ask permission to kill Walter White, for example. But it's a very exaggerated image that was portrayed Santa Muerte, out of all of the uh, traditions out there as far as occultism, is probably the most benign one. And I can tell you this for a fact because I grew up in it. There's no sacrifice. There's no blood, anything. What you see in Mexico that is concerning when it comes to some of these practices is the Afro-Caribbean influence coming into Mexico. You saw in the early '90s the phenomenon of the of the narcosatanicos, the satanist cartel members, who were basically utilizing Afro-Caribbean Palo traditions and creating these gangas, which are basically vessels of a spirit that are loaded with bones, organs, and a bunch of other things to capture power in a way. You saw the murder of an American and whose brain was utilized for one of these Ngandas by a very known, his name escapes me right now, but it was a very known cartel occultist uh, guy uh, who was killed in a shootout after that. Uh, But you start seeing parts of it. So I think in a big way, a lot of these occult elements that you see in Mexico are being utilized in a few ways. Number one, hazing rituals for people that are being trained up or being turned into murderers. The military has it in the United States, or they used to have it, but these rituals have absolutely nothing to do with spiritual practices, but they they get enveloped in these because that's the language these people speak because they grew up Catholic and spiritual practices they grew up in. So I can't indoctrinate somebody because of a country. I can't indoctrinate somebody because of a Catholicism or religion into my organization. What am I gonna use? This dark practice of whatever. And I utilize that as a way to convince and or to create true believers of the fighters that I'm trying to create. The cannibalism is usually related to some of these uh, hazing rituals. Hey, if you wanna be one of us, you have to eat that dude's heart, you know? That's where that comes from. It's not a spiritual practice uh, that I know of uh, when it comes to Santa Muerte or Catholicism. The symbology of it is very much related to some of the uh, Afro-Caribbean religious practices that have kind of seeped their way into Mexico. I think if people want to kind of figure out some of the the spirituality of, of Mexico, and specifically some of the stuff that's being done criminally, you'll see three main elements. Four, I mean. The Afro-Caribbean element that came into Mexico in the early 90s and it's growing exponentially, it is, in a way you can tell that this is outgrowing most faith practices. You'll go to most of the uh, botanicas in Mexico or or places where they sell spiritual artifacts and iconography and incense and stuff like that. And most of what is on the shelves will tell you or give you a good insight in what is popular. And what you'll see is Afro-Caribbean ngangas, afro-caribbean paulo practice the stuff in most of these places as you'll see santa muerte or effigies of death you'll see san judas uh saint jude patron saint of lost causes and also very uh, a patron saint of cartel and narcos basically you'll see malverde a robin hood t- type character out of sinaloa who robs from the rich and gave to the poor and now has a giant altar in in, in sinaloa and is very much venerated as a hero so psychologically and ideologically. It's an interesting aspect to create this Robin Hood character who your, your group of people that are working with you criminally now venerate. So that is in their, their true believers of whatever else we're doing. You go there and you'll see pictures of these guys uh, in there with their new Raptor trucks somewhere in the United States thanking Malverde for allowing them to smuggle successfully. It is concerning. I don't think it's concerning in that they are a cult of Satanists that are going to come to the United States or that are all over Mexico and they're doing horrible shit. I think there is an element of that somewhere uh, within not organized crime, but mostly some civilian occultist stuff happening of a dark nature in some of these environments. Again, Human trafficking, organ trafficking, and uh, blood rituals related to a lot of these things go hand in hand in some of these cartel organizations and the occultist elements that they are practicing and or utilizing as a as a tool to, to gain control over the people that work with them. Again, Santa Marta is the easiest one to point at because it looks satanic and there's a skeleton there, but deep down inside, it's only a veneration of a duality spirit that probably comes from pre-Hispanic times where they're venerating life in the form of Donatzin, or the Virgin of Guadalupe, and on the other side, death in the form of that reaper. If you see both the venerations are the same and they're harmless, realistically. These are desperate people praying to uh, forbidden saints. So these are marginalized people and marginalized doesn't mean criminal, you know? People who work in the sex industry, people like myself that uh, that were working in a job that was very dangerous, and very much vilified. Uh, I grew up with the tradition and Santa Marta was part of the ways that uh, a lot of us were taught to overcome the fear of death. And it was very much utilized in some of the uh, organizations that it was a part of to convince us that that just shouldn't be something that we, we should fear because she was on our side. So I could see the ways that this has been utilized as a tool in the past and specific- in, in the present. And, how the power it has over people, and how you are now seeing it all over the United States. Uh, I went to a Santa Muerte uh, shrine in Connecticut, out of all places. So it's it's here. It's uh it's 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 out there. As far as it being a nefarious or evil, I think it it all depends on how people use it. And I think it's being utilized as a tool of control. Uh, an old witch in Mexico <laughs> told me this, and it's a pretty fascinating thing. She said, black magic at its core is only a form of weaponized psychology, Ed. The curse doesn't work if you don't know about it. And I think that was a very powerful statement when it comes to some of these practices. And I think it's very much being utilized as weaponized psychology.
1: Calderon describes himself as a pro-gun, pro-family conservative. He has visited almost every state in the union and says he was most fearful in Baltimore of all places, more fearful than some cities and towns in Mexico. I see a country very divided.
0: I see people fostering that division. I see people that don't talk to each other just specifically because of what they believe. I see a, I see a lot of fear being expressed by members of the United States, you know. I, I see suspicion with neighbors and a division being very much utilized as a political tool. It's scary. Obviously, I am invested in this country through blood. My daughter is going to... Her future is is in the United States. And I think if anything, I I came to this country with the uh, money in my pocket and a three-year-old under my arms. And I hit the ground running. When I say I hit the ground running, how can I help? How can I work? Uh, even though outside of the uh, immigration offices, a bunch of people handed me a bunch of ways to get free money from the the system if I wanted to. I never took any of that. And I just legit hit the ground running because I want to earn it. The American dream is very much alive and real. I think the idealist notion that the America is all good is poisonous. It is not all good. That's why we work. That's why we make it better. It's a constant struggle. It's a constant fight. I'm very much proud to be here. I... I'm concerned about I'm concerned about some of the activity that the government does, a government is doing across the world and in in the country. But there is no other place in the world that has less enemies to the freedoms that a lot of people here enjoy than the United States, and it's simple as that. During the COVID epidemic, produce wasn't in shortage on the supermarket aisles; toilet paper was. So it means that uh, illegal immigration is essential work. Like we need to ask these questions. Some parts of the United States uh, during uh, this, the the uh, the troubles of the past few years didn't have the 911 services to respond to their issues. And this is the United States. I think there's a lot of soul searching we need to do as a whole in a country. And division is not gonna do anything to help that. My immigrant experience of the United States and people can talk shit about the country all they want. I'm not from here, but I am trying to earn my space and place here. And I think everybody should have that attitude about where they are standing. There's no other place like it in the world. There's no other place that will offer you these opportunities, the freedom to do things. And also the resp- the responsibility that this country has to offer you as far as being able to make a difference and 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 an influence. There's no other place on earth like this. And I think it should be protected at all costs.
1: Ed Calderon, that's the last word. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for your service and welcome to America.
0: Every time I hear that, I feel really warm inside. It almost makes me want to cry.
1: So thank you for that welcome. In closing, here's my reporter's recap and reflections. The United States has survived for 250 years because its leaders recognized and repelled threats. But in the current environment of polarization, will the U.S. recognize the national security threat on its doorstep? You've been listening to the True Crime Reporter podcast. Stay true, stay safe, and stay tuned for more stories from inside the crime scene tape. This is Robert Riggs reporting. Thank you.